Boom, put boom, boom, A side, B side, what side are you on? Welcome back. It's another episode of A side, B side podcast. What's going on, Adam? Not too much, Brooke. How are you? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. It's starting to get really warm here. Yeah, that's uh, it's been pretty beautiful up here. So we've had like three consecutive weeks with highs in the 90s, which is completely weird for Minnesota in June. So uh, at this point, people are just kind of shrugging and getting used to it. Well, I'm sure it's good for business, though, because you guys have the outside patio. Uh, to an extent. When it gets really hot, though, people don't want to sit in the sun. People are very fickle. That's so true. Our, our patio lot is direct sunlight until about 5 p.m. And then it's got some shade and then everybody goes out there. So it's it's kind of this moving target. Like we've got one area of the patio that's in the shade during the day and it's busy during the day and then it switches to the night. So you're constantly kind of adjusting. But uh, we've had pe- lots of people coming back and it's uh, it's been a, you know consistently good. So it's uh, exciting. So it's been a couple of weeks since we've actually taught. Well, yeah, actually it's been a couple of weeks because we recorded ahead of time so have you caught up on movies uh i have not i have been completely distracted by uh the euros uh soccer tournament and also just how beautiful it's been i've been working extra and trying to spend as much time outside as possible so i am behind i think in the last week uh all i've really done is get caught up on some more elementary and NCIS and the new Loki series. Uh, I have not seen episode two yet. So don't tell me anything. <laughs> because I made myself, I, I made myself wait. Uh, today was my, my weekend. So I had a lot that I tried to get done today. And I was like, you have to get all of the things crossed off your list. Uh, the last of which is recording the podcast. And then you can watch the Loki episode. So I tried to uh, do something very weird for me, which was to exhibit some self-control. Well, I will not give you any spoilers. Uh, I am interested to see the direction they take this because I feel like each show has been very different from the last, like WandaVision and the Falcon and the Winter Soldier are very different. And and now Loki is very different from those two. So it'll be interesting to see the direction they take it in. And I don't, uh, completely different. I actually was talking with a friend of mine who is now for the first time watching all of the MCUs. He's seen one or two but he's watching them all in order from the beginning. Uh, So it's been really fun to talk with him at work about uh, like, as he's experiencing each of the movies for the first time. And he uh, then also last night uh, I had suggested to him, but he finally started the first season of the Mandalorian. Uh, And he said uh, of the eight episodes in the first season, he binged seven last night. So, wow. uh, I haven't watched those, but it's been fun to kind of talk through everything again and kind of that experience of when you, you get to, see somebody else experience it for the first time and uh, talk through all the stories and the moments again. That's been really cool. I think one of my favorite things about media is how often it's enjoying it. But then I think I've mentioned like when I was a kid, one of my, like how I experienced so many movies that I couldn't watch at home because of their rating or that we didn't have uh, was talking with my friends on the playground about this show or movie that they watch and having them describe the whole thing to me so I could imagine in my mind even before I saw it 
So it's really fun to talk about this stuff. It's why this is so much fun too. I found out something that I thought you would be really interested in um, because you are into like the old school media and, and the movies and things like that. So it's actually two real quick facts. So Cannonball Run, I, I was actually listening to another podcast that I really like called Criminal. And yeah, they okay. had two different stories. Phoebe Judge is the host of that. But interestingly enough, okay, so in the 80s, Cannonball Run movies were huge. You know, they had... Um, well, they had know, like a, a ridiculously large cast. Burt Reynolds was yeah. the main star and what, Dom DeLuise. And yeah, they, they all had r- ridiculously huge casts. But Cannonball Run movies are based on an actual event, the Cannonball Run. Did you know that? I had heard that it was maybe a thing, but I don't really like, I wasn't sure if that was just legend or if it was actually something that was still happening or happened for a period of time. I didn't know the details. I couldn't figure out if it was urban legend or not. So apparently it's true. And it was something that actually started a long, long time ago. And and the very first Cannonball Run was supposed to be like this massive race and only like one car showed up to this race. And then... (laughs) Um, once they did the, you know, the, the whole run because it was from New York to California and then, you know, everybody found out about it and then, you know, they did it a couple of years later and then it became like a thing. So it was like really, really a, a wild story. So it's like an unsanctioned run that starts at New York City's Red Ball Garage to the Portofino Hotel in Redondo Beach. So that's like 2,800 miles. Yeah, it's crazy. And so that that when I heard that that was like a, a, a real event that happened, I was like, whoa, I, I always just thought it was a, a goofy 80s movie, you know? Yeah, because it definitely it it was one another one of those like TNT, TBS, USA, like would constantly run it back when I was a kid. And so you catch like different parts of it at different times. Mm-hmm. And it, it always seemed like this is too this is too goofy, too over the top. This could never happen. So that's why I think even when somebody said, hey, this is real, I was like, ah, I don't know about that. Yeah. And then the other thing that I was listening to, and I had had seen this a while back and then it it kind of re-sparked, is do you remember Max Hedrum, the TV show? Yes. Yeah. In the 80s. So Max Hedrum was the TV host that was, you know, virtual or computer or whatever. I mean, it was a wild, co- like today, if you said Max Hedrum, virtual computer TV host, people would be like, yeah, whatever. That's yeah, old they'd be like, yeah, that's, that's totally normal. But yeah. in the 80s, for, for that to be thought of, it was like this whole wild concept. But anyway, so there was a Max Hedrum signal hijacking that happened in November of 1987 there were some broadcasters they were in the middle of think of like of a sports story and they're talking and then the the signal cuts and it goes to like this unidentified person in this Max Hedra mask and it's just you see them with distorted audio and there's like metal swinging in the background and it's like for 30 seconds and then it goes back it's 25 or 30 seconds and it goes back to the broadcast and this happened on WGN which if you know anything about television WGN is one of the major networks like it's not a little small time WGN broadcasts to other uh, other television stations so yeah you know for that it, it, it was on cable like TNT and TBS it was like that's like I saw more Cubs games than I probably 
you know, had any business because it was on WGN. It was on TV. Yes. Yes. And then there was a second intrusion. Um, I think it happened the same night, but it was hours later. But this time it was on a PBS affiliate, WTTW, in the middle of a Doctor Who, which, you know, of course, when I heard Doctor Who, I was like, what? Yeah. I'm all about some Doctor Who. It yeah. was like in the middle of a Doctor Who broadcast. And this time it lasted for like 90 seconds. And you can hear them like talking and they like throw like a, a Coke or a Pepsi bottle at the screen and they're, they're saying things. But anyway, whoever did this to this day has never been found. I just thought that was wildly interesting. That's crazy. I mean, that's not something you could just like, at that point, you'd have to have some specialized equipment to interrupt a signal, I would assume. Well, and it's and, not and like you could just. Right. And the theory is they had to have been someone, especially in the eighties, it had to have been someone who had the knowledge and they had to have been close because they would have had to be pointing at the the signal, the antenna, hmm. um, to be able to to hijack it like that. But nobody has ever nobody's ever come forward. Of course, they didn't want to come forward back then because they would have faced some serious charges, like the FCC got involved and stuff. But yeah, to, and you think you think at some point though, somebody would be like, "Yeah, it was me." Right? Like, okay, the statute of limitations is over. Ha! I pulled off this major hijack, but. No, to this day, it is still unknown who, who was responsible for those incidents. So, and men we mentioned Loki earlier, and of course, and spoiler alert, in the first episode, it's it's indicated that he was part of a, a major mystery of history. So maybe in like episode five, we'll find out that Loki was the Max Headroom signal <laughs> Right. <laughs> that was really clever. Not going to give you any spoilers about that mystery. But when they did that, I was like, okay, that's pretty clever. That's pretty cute. I've, I've been really impressed. I was, I was a little... I was curious and a little concerned because Loki had such an incredible character arc from mm -hmm. like the first, you know, the, the first Thor movie all the way through Avengers Infinity War. And it was like, at first that character, like he was, he was a jerk. Nobody liked him by the end. Like we all loved him. And right. like, that was, and again, spoiler alert, but that was one of the most shocking, harsh moments at the beginning of, of Infinity War was his, part in it and i i don't think that if that had happened you know without the character art people might not have been as broken up or you know that was where you're like okay this movie's not messing around but we're going back to that original guy i'm like is he just gonna be a jerk the whole time but they did such a good job in the first episode of like acknowledging the character arc but then also making giving you like this is a different character but he's he's now seen that too it was it was really brilliant how they brought in the whole like Marvel characters watching the Marvel characters again, like mm -hmm. they did in, in WandaVision. I thought it was incredibly well done and kind of just set the stage for I'm excited to see where they go. I am going to watch, like I said, no spoilers. I am going to watch the end of the second episode again because I was watching it on my phone. And, you know, they shoot some of the scenes kind of dark. So I feel like I kind of mm -hmm. missed some things. So I want to watch it on my television. But that said, the episode was very good. Yeah, that's that's another reason I my I love my apartment for the fact that it has windows on like a bunch of windows in the in the main area, but it can be really hard to like see things on the TV screen during the day. day. So 
that'll be another bonus of waiting until after the podcast to watch it. <laughs> as as he as he tries to convince himself it's okay that he waited this long. It is okay. It's still going to be there. It's not going anywhere. Delayed gratification is not on Adam's top skills. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's finish this so that you can watch Loki then. Oh, uh, one other thing I have watched in the last two weeks. Uh, it was more like last week before we didn't record, but I wanted to mention to you because I think it is right up your alley. Uh, so, you know, I've been going through all the QB, Quibi. Is it QB or Quibi? Quibi. 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 Quick bite. <laughs> Quick bite. There you go. Quibi. Uh, so all the series are, are on Roku now, on the Roku channel. Mm-hmm. And there is a, and I don't know, I, I've been doing so much that, like, I had myself convinced that I did tonight's topic already. So hopefully I haven't. Uh, but the I feel like I've talked about this, but it's a series called Last Looks, and it, it is all true crime, uh, like bite-sized things. So it's usually like about you know you add all the episodes, it's like 25, 30 minutes, but it's all uh, true crime in the fashion industry. Ooh! So they talked about like I had never had any idea that. There was uh, a whole thing with uh, Lady Gucci. So evidently the, the, the wife of, of one of the, the heirs to the Gucci fortune was involved in a whole like murder mm-hmm. for hire plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there have been, uh, so it's been really interesting and super bite-sized. So uh, I would say if you haven't had a chance to check it out, it is definitely worse, uh, worth the effort. Uh, I wonder if they'll uh, talk about Coco Chanel and Versace. Yeah, so far they've the ones I've watched were the murder of Maruzio Gucci and a fake heiress called Anna Delvey, uh, which I she basically conned everybody into thinking that she was. It was very kind of very much like the Fire Festival, mm-hmm. uh, but but not. Uh, and it's narrated. It's all narrated by Dakota Fanning. Because uh, she's involved in it, and there's like 18 episodes, but I'm through the first couple. And uh, there was another one uh, where it was connected to uh, the Bloomingdale's heir and his mistress in the 80s, and she was like, like evidently was just like a known secret that like he had a house for her, and they were into uh, more risque um, you know, BDSM stuff. And but he was also like really close with Reagan. And there was concern that like when she was going to write this book and then she she ended up getting murdered and like, how did that factor in? And was like, what was that book going to be about? So it's uh, that was really interesting as well, but all stories that I had absolutely never even heard of. Hmm. I'll have to check it out on QB, as you say, Quibi. Yeah. Quibi, QB, Quibi. It's (laughs) on the Roku channel now. So I don't know if it's available elsewhere. I don't know if you can still get the QB app. I don't believe so. I mean, you could probably yeah. download the app, but it's not going to do you any good. Yeah. Yeah, I'll guess it, according to the internet, it shut down in October of 2020. So Yeah. Uh, so that's going to be a no for Adam. Yeah. But at least they're getting some mileage out of the content. That's it true. Some good stuff. There is some really good stuff. And, I, and like I like we've said before, it was just the timing because had this 
been launched any other year before or even now, I think Quibi would have a chance because people are back getting back into normal routines and quick bites are really good. Whereas when everybody was stuck at home, we're like, why would I, which I mean, I still watched it, but, but I was still going to work and stuff too. But, um, but we're all at home watching Netflix. So why do I want, you know, eight minutes when I can get into, you know, a series? Yeah. And I, I think I read somewhere that a lot of watching over the last year has been comfort watching, you know, people rewatching things they've already seen before, or, right. you know, like going through like in the last year, I watched, rewatched all of leverage and all of, uh, Longmire and all of Psych again and all of White Collar, you know, stuff that I'd seen before, but like makes me feel good because there was just so much chaos in the last year, uh, which doesn't appear to be, you know, at least up here in the Twin Cities isn't stopping anytime soon. Uh, so it, it, people may not have been, op- you know, as open to new stuff when you're trying to find, you know, comfort media. Yeah. But it's nice that it's found a home on Roku. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. Because you could tell people put a lot of time and effort. It's, you know, well done stuff. Yeah. And and some big names, like some big names. Yeah. They even did. Go ahead. I still haven't, I still haven't watched the the greatest game. Oh yeah. They even did a celebrity like reenactment side by side act out of the princess bride, which was great. They did? Yeah. I completely missed that, mm-hmm. which is inconceivable. <laughs> I do not think that word means what you think it means. Half the words I use don't mean what I think they mean. <laughs> <laughs> that movie is still holds up. I don't. I don't care. Oh, it's yeah. amazing, and it's one of the best movies ever. Yeah, it. it I actually somebody. There was something that popped up about uh iocane powder i thought it was in a, in a elementary episode i think where they reference princess bride because the um uh one of the characters had like had snakes and so they developed a uh like lots of tiny bites so they were immune to the snake venom that was used in a murder or something but they the tv show referenced princess bride i was like that's awesome that is really cool if you can work it in. So we are now a Princess Bride podcast, so. Yeah, yeah, which, uh, little known fact, Angelina Jolie was actually up for Princess Buttercup. So. <laughs> I don't even know if she was born yet, but yeah, she I, was up for Princess Buttercup. <laughs> it was a very different story. Princess was like five, so. <laughs> All right, so we're going to do a little something different this week. Ooh. Yeah, so as we head into the B-side, just get ready for um, a little mystery, a little intrigue. All right, I am, I'm girding my loins. All right, so in 1991, the Miyazawa family moved to... Okay, now I had practiced all of these, and now I'm, I am so sorry if I butcher these names. I am really trying my hardest. Okay, so they moved to the Kamshi... Kamshigaya Street, or they moved to Kamshigaya Street in Setagawa Ward of Tokyo, Japan. Mikio, Mizawa, Yasaku, and their two children, Nina and Ray, were your pretty typical middle-class family. So Mikio was 44 and he worked for Interbrand. 
It's a London-based marketing firm. Interbrand worked on campaigns for major companies like Haagen-Dazs, Procter & Gamble, and Microsoft. I looked them up. I mean, their page is what you would expect from, you know, an international marketing company. You're like, oh, wow, this is, yeah, all right. Mm -hmm. I see where the money goes. Yeah, and, <laughs> and Interbrand is like just a classic marketing name. It kind of means something, but it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I read on a blog, uh, blog post on unresolved.me that they were even responsible for the branding of the term Wi-Fi or Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi. Oh, yeah. yes, the Wi-Fi, yes. So Mikio was really well-liked by all, it seems, from everything that I could find. Yasuko was 41, and she was also really well-liked and described as kind. Yasuko was a teacher. Nina was eight and in second grade, and she enjoyed soccer and ballet. And little Ray was six. So when the uh, Miyazawa family moved into the area, it was like a really vibrant suburb. There was over 200 houses with families. I mean, just your typical suburb division, you know, with the families and the, you know, hey, can I borrow some sugar? I mean, maybe not, but, but you yeah, know how it is yeah. when, when you go to your neighbors and you're like, hey, neighbor, uh, you need, can I get some bread or some milk or, you know, whatever. Yeah, the, the normal, you know, like family life, what, what you would expect, certainly not something that would develop into mystery. Right, exactly. So Setagaya is Tokyo's second largest district out of 23. So the Miyazawa house was really two dwellings in one with Mikio and his family on one side. And then on the other side, it belonged to Yasuko's family, her mom, her sister, and her brother-in-law. So... In between the two sides, seven people lived, you know, in this one dwelling, it was two houses. So it makes me think like duplex, like yeah. my mom owns a duplex. And like, you know, when I was growing up, we were on one side and her sister and, you know, her family were on the other side. So I'm sure it got kind of cramped at times because you're like, mom, you're all up in my space, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm going to go home which is next door. Right. Although culturally, I know they are a bit different and a little, they're more tight knit. So maybe it wasn't annoying at all. Yeah, I know. It might have just kind of the norm. Yeah. Yeah. I know if like my kids live next door to me, I'd be like, can y'all go home? <laughs> I love you. Now get out of my house. <laughs> so behind the Miyazawa home was a choo-choo train park. So the city of Tokyo had planned to expand the park and more and more of the Miyazawa's neighbors began selling off their land. And by 2000, only four houses remained in the area that started off with 200. So the Miyazawa uh, connected to dwelling that one house and then there were two others. So when I say four, it's the two houses, the Miyazawa's and the uh, Yasuko's family and then two other dwellings. So the Miyazawa family, like the others, had accepted the offer from the city because the city wanted to buy the land and they were planning to move. They had already sold their land to the city um, and they were planning to move. But sadly, the family would never get to see their new home. So when we think of New Year's Eve, typically we get excited for all the, the, the promise that the new year has to bring, like, especially for us this past year, when we went from 2020 to 2021, I don't know if I've ever been more excited to see a new year come in, like 
finally like and it wasn't like just because we went from 2020 to 2021 like the virus was going to be gone but it was like new things on the horizon and you know there was the election that we had to look forward to and what all that brought with it yeah i mean new year's is always a great you know, like we get a fresh start but i definitely felt more cathartic this year yeah so unfortunately the miyazawas would never get to live to see those promises come in so the summer of 2000 saw some strange occurrences in the area animals were being tortured apparently mm -hmm. like rats had been found killed murdered which i don't i say killed because can you murder a rat or is that people specific I don't know. I, I think that there would definitely be groups that would call it murder. So okay. I think we can say murder. So and it's all like, as we've, as you've said, hundreds of times, which it, not, that's an exaggeration, at least 49 times, because this is the epi episode 49. Uh, that's usually a bad sign. Right, exactly. So not only were animals being murdered, local stray cats were found with their tails missing. I mean, this is not a good sign here at all. Yeah by any stretch so on christmas day yasuko told her father-in-law about a strange car that had been parked in front of their house it was odd because well remember one there's not a lot of people that live in the area anymore mm -hmm. and there was way more convenient parking if someone was trying to get to the park but it's parked in front of her house so it's it was just weird and it happened on several different occasions on December 27th, a man presumed to be in his 40s was witnessed walking around the Miyazawa house. Now, remember, they had sold their land, you know, to the city. So was it somebody that was just kind of interested in the property, you know, because it had been sold? But if it's sold to the city, I'm sure the city is not going to sell it to this random dude because they're trying to expand. So who knows why this man is walking? could be i mean when you saw a house like people come and inspect it you know the city's gonna like expand the train park maybe this is somebody looking at you know power lines or who knows you know it's... right but it was just weird and it was noted like hey this is not normal so then on december 29th a man was seen in a nearby sijoa sijoga kunmei station wearing a quote-unquote skater outfit which eyewitnesses found a bit odd because it's well December when you think skater mm -hmm. outfit you're thinking t-shirt shorts things like that yeah you're thinking like St Steve Buscemi in 21 Jump Street hello fellow kid <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> now this station this uh Sijoja a Sijoga station was just a few miles from the Miyazawa home on December 30th, a man matching that same description was seen at the Sengawa station, which is about a mile away from the Miyazawa family. His age estimated between 35 and 40. He was repeatedly, excuse me, he was reportedly heading in the direction of the Miyazawa family. Now, for the Miyazawa family, the 30th was the typical day. They prepared for the New Year holiday. The family of four as reported by eyewitnesses that saw them and their car missing from their driveway, they had gone out shopping about six o'clock. They returned home somewhere around seven. Yasuko called her mom and next door neighbor on the telephone. Nina then goes next door to visit with her grandmother and stays over there till about 930, which is 
totally normal. I mean, trust me, if I had lived next door to my mom when my kids were little, they'd have been over there all the time, okay? Yeah, when, before I moved, I, we, I was kitty corner from my parents, our backyards touched. And that was one of the great benefits is like you could, I could be like, hey, we're out of this, go ask grandma. And they right. could run across the yard. Or you just are like, y'all are really loud. Why don't you go see your grandma? <laughs> she really, she just called me and said she wants you to come visit. Yeah. <laughs> so the last recorded activity from any family member was an email accessed from Mikio's work email at 10.38 p.m. It was a password-protected email, which meant that it was most likely him that opened it. So here's where details get a bit sketchy. The unsub, as they like to say on, uh, on Criminal Minds, the unknown suspect, uh, the mm-hmm. perpetrator, is believed to have entered an open window in the second floor bathroom in the rear of the house. He gained access by climbing up a tree and then removing the window screen. His first target once inside the dwelling was six-year-old Ray whose bedroom was located next to the bathroom. Now, when you see a layout of the house, it's not, it's a, it's quite a bit different than I think most dwellings here in the States because it's two levels, but it's like split. It's, it, they're very split levels. So it's almost like a loft kind of level. And then a, like the first floor and then kind of a loft and then like a basement. I will post pictures on our website so you can kind of get a, a, a feel for it. An idea of the breakdown. Yeah. So sleeping Ray is the only victim killed by strangulation. The perp uses his bare hands. It's the bedroom that contains the most footprints, which is why they believe this is where he entered from or entered, you know, this was his first stop after coming in through the bathroom. Hmm. Next is Mikio, who believe uh, police believe put up one massive fight Yasuko's mother remembers hearing a thud that night, but didn't think much of it until much after the fact. I mean, how many times have we heard something, especially with kids, you know, kids go running around, they, you know, they jump, they play. I mean, I'm sure like part of her is like, I heard that I could have done something, but you hear stuff like that all the time. I mean, I hear my neighbors all the time and I wouldn't think any, I wouldn't think twice about it. Because I know, like, I remember hearing like little tiny footsteps running and I knew they had a kid over there. Oh, they got a kid. So if I heard something bump, I didn't think much of it because I knew they had a kid over there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and, and at some point you get used to the sounds from neighbors and you can't, I mean, you almost like, I live by a busy street. I don't always notice the traffic. It just becomes part of the deal. Yeah. So based on timing around TV shows, it would seem to fit that it was at the time of, the murders. So Mikio's body is badly wounded with marks on his thighs and his backside and stab wounds on his arms, his chest, and his face. A police report states that he was stabbed in the head with a sashimi bocho knife, a boko knife, um, and it broke. Like the perpetrator stabbed him so hard that the blade broke and was left, part of the blade was left into his skull. After Ray and Mikio, the perpetrator then heads to the attic, like I was trying to explain the breakdown of the house to you. He then heads mm-hmm. to the attic um, 
where Yasuko and Nina were sleeping, it was accessible by a foldable ladder. There, he used the broken sashimi knife and then a Sentoku kitchen knife from the Miyazawa house to stab the mother and daughter multiple times. Yasuko made it out of the attic with Nina before the killer finished his job. So it's like that mother instinct took over and she was able to get Nina, how she got her, I don't know, but she was able to get her down these ladder steps. Like she carried her out of the attic and she was able to get down the steps, but you know, she's injured and you've got a, yeah. a healthy attacker chasing you. So um, unfortunately, you know, they weren't able to escape. It feels like a scene out of a movie. It, it, oh, wait, just wait. So now most cases we hear the killer does what he does and like leaves, right? Like they don't stick around. That's how it is in the movies. That's how it is most of the time when we talk about these kinds of cases. They do what they yeah. do and they leave, but not this time. So after the killer takes out this whole family, he then goes into the kitchen, eats ice cream, and makes barley tea. Jeez. He must have also at some point cut himself in the course of the evening because he left behind a Band-Aid. He also decided he was hungry enough to eat some melon while he was in the kitchen. Next, he decides to rummage through the family's belongings. He goes through family documents. He then took out all of the drawers from the dressers and dumped them all in the bathtub on the second floor. At some point, he used the bathroom in the house, leaving behind solid evidence. If you catch my drift. Yeah. Uh-huh. Investigators could tell that the killer had something with sesame seeds and string beans because of nope. the evidence left behind. Investi investigators don't get enough credit for doing some just having to do some man some tough stuff Ma man that's a shitty job sorry <laughs> sorry i'm, I'm sorry <laughs> i'm sorry okay <laughs> i like held off saying you know it's a dirty job but <laughs> sorry so the killer it's also, just a matter of time it really one was. of us is gonna do it I, i'm sorry no don't apologize <laughs> so the killer also throws some personal effects of the couple uh of a couple of yusoko's uh yasuko's purses in the toilet along with mikio's wallet another item that had been found by the perpetrator a white towel stained with his blood so, so we got some DNA. We've got DNA. We've got other evidence. I mean, we've got the Band-Aid. We've got this towel and that other stuff. Yeah, we figured out what they their recent, uh, what they had for eating that day and also recently. Right, right. And, and yeah, and I'm sure if, they, if they've been this sloppy because they made the tea and they had some melon, there's probably DNA all around there too. Okay. Right. Yeah. So the killer also found time in his busy murder schedule to take a nap on the sofa in their second floor living room. Like this dude had nowhere to be. He was like, I'm good. I took out the family. I'm, I'm chilling. This is like, yeah, it's like the killer came in and decided like after he was done doing the killing, he was Goldilocks. Seriously. 
but he just didn't have to worry about the three bears. Yeah, no, just just checking everything out. If these people aren't going to use it anymore, I guess I'll have some melon. So then, you know, he's had his little nap. What do you do next? You decide to surf the internet. That's what this killer did at 118. He logs onto the internet using Makio's computer. And he even, this dude even, talk about ballsy. He even creates a new folder. And he wanted to apparently see a movie, like had a hankering because he checked out the movie theater website that had been favorited by Makio. What? Did he create a folder? He didn't put anything in it? It just says he created a new folder. Like yeah. all the information I saw, it says he created a new folder. I mean, it's a weird thing to do. Like, I mean, cool, and I'm you know, gonna... those things are timestamps so you can see when it was created. Yeah. Yeah. That's weird. But then he's like, oh, what's playing? Huh. Sleepless in Seattle. All right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Any what? horror, any horror movies I can go to? Right. Oh, the ring okay yeah so it was believed for quite some time that the killer was still in the house at 10 a.m because the computer connected to the internet again but in 2014 police published a report stating that the second login was actually believed to be an accident police found the mouse under the table and the site that had been connected to was mikio's homepage. So police conducted like experiments using the same type of computer as Mikio's and their conclusion that was, was that when Yasuko's mom knocked, uh, excuse me, Yasuko's mom dropped or knocked over the mouse when she found the family and then the computer connected automatically. Gotcha, yeah. It went out of sleep mode or something. Right. So the killer before leaving decided mm, to change his clothes because he left a bunch of clothing behind as well. He left a fanny pack with traces of sand supposedly originating in Southwest America, like the Nevada desert, more specifically Edwards Air Force Base in California. So this is a fact that was mentioned by several Japanese newspapers, but not included in any reports from the Tokyo Metro Police. The fact about the sand. Weird. The One fan- weird that it's there, but weird that it... It wasn't mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if that was because they didn't want to give away anything or I don't, I don't know. You know, sometimes police hold information back, you know, say, well, if you knew about this, you know, we didn't release this in their their report. So yeah, they they get you in the questioning. Mm -hmm. So the fanny pack was well-worn and relatively small. It was sold in Japan between September of 1995 to January of 1999. The backpack that had clothes in it uh, sold for under $30 and was made in Korea. Black light tests revealed some type of red fluorescent substance and dark hair strands of the killer. So we've got hair, we've got blood, we've got fecal matter. I'm sure there's saliva on a spoon that he ate the ice cream with. We've got got tons of of evidence here, tons of evidence. He also left behind a muffler, or as we would call it, a scarf. It was also well used like the bag, but unlike the bag, difficult to trace. Next were sneakers. They were uh, Slazenger's, which is a British brand, uh, but it's produced in South Korea. They were sold in South Korea and Japan, but the size that of that specific sneaker that was left was only sold in South Korea. 
He also left behind a shirt. It looks like a long sleeve baseball type shirt, like black or navy blue sleeves with the white body. You get what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, like the baseball style, like three quarter length sleeves. Yes. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, often worn under like old school baseball uniforms. Yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. the thing about that, that type of shirt is in Tokyo, only 10 of them were sold in a store that had since closed. It was called MX. So we got a really limited number of shirts out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in the entire country, only... Um, okay, so only 10 of them were sold in that store in Tokyo, but in the entire country of Japan, 130 were sold. Only 130. So even if it wasn't bought in Tokyo, like one of the 10 in Tokyo, there was only 130 sold in the entire country. Yeah, you think with that and all the DNA evidence and all the footprints, you, like we've got a lot of puzzle pieces here. Yeah. So then there was a gray knitted bucket hat and a black padded unique glow jacket, size large, and a black one size and black one size fits all gloves. Police noted that some of the clothing smelled like Dracar Noir. So what do you thought he was going on a date like or something? Because you know, yeah, that this, was, a, that was this, the this old is a school. very unique style. Yeah, this, yeah, I, I, I know some people who have Dracar Noir. I mean, back in like the day, you know, if they had on Dracar, you know, that was like the scent. Now I think if people wear Dracar, you'd be like, what are you wearing? Yeah. Is that Dracar? Yeah, nope. I don't know anybody that wears that. <laughs> That'd um, be weird. So lastly, two black handkerchiefs were also found on the scene. It's believed that one of them was used on the knife's handle. According to police in Tokyo, this is a Chinese technique used by workers in fish factories to prevent knives from slipping while cleaning seafood. So could be the perp did it wrong, which is how he cut himself? Could be. I don't know. Sounds just like chaos and randomness was all over the place with this individual unsub. So he also left behind dark colored pants. Like he left behind... A mini wardrobe. <laughs> There's a lot going on here. There is a ton going on here. So with all of this evidence, you'd think slam dunk, home run, you know, run, bada, bada, swing, bat, whatever, whatever sports yeah, analogy whatever you want to use. sports metaphor you want. Yeah, <laughs> touchdown. You right. Know. You would think that you this know, was going to be solved, but no, no. So while we do know some very specific things about the killer since he left his DNA in prints, the killer is a male, has the blood type of A, and most likely mixed race because his maternal DNA indicated that uh, he was of European descent, possibly Southern Europe, like near the Mediterranean or Adriatic Sea. His paternal DNA indicated a father of East Asian descent physically, he has dark hair and is believed to be about 170 centimeters, which is five foot six and thin framed. Police estimate he was born between 1965 and 1985, putting in between 15 and 35 at the time of the murder. Also, the wounds on the Miyazawas indicate that their killer was right handed, which it is so amazing to me. As much as I follow true crime, it still amazes me that they can tell by the way somebody's wounds enter their body, what hand the attacker used. Yeah, that and handwriting. Like the the stuff they can do with handwriting is just nuts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So the diller, the killer's DNA, not the dillers, the killer's DNA did not or has not matched anyone in Tokyo's databases. Police even turned it over to the International Criminal Police Organization, but no matches were found. So there are some other strange coincidences, theories, odd coincidences connected to the murder, okay? Mm -hmm. The murders. So an unnamed cab driver told the Tokyo Metro Police that on the night he picked up, on that night, the night of the murder, he picked up three men, all middle-aged, the men remained completely quiet during the ride, not saying a single solitary word. This happened the night of the murder after midnight, and one of them left a blood stain on the cab's back seat. Hmm. Okay, so that's like an odd coincidence. Yeah. I mean, I guess if there was more than one person that would, because there's so much evidence. Right. So. Yeah. So a couple of theories. So theory number one, before the horrendous murders, Mikio had apparently been involved in several arguments with skateboarders who often use the skate park behind the family home about making too much noise. One witness said that Mikio had apparently confronted members of a motorcycle gang who'd been hanging out at the park. Some investigators suspected that possibly one of the skateboarders took revenge on the uh, Miyazawa family. Maybe the sesame seeds and string beans provide proof that to this theory as the food is considered to be a mama's boy meal and could indicate someone who lived at home with their mom. First of all, kudos to uh, Tokyo for the shade for the mama's boy meal. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. Cause I am here for all that shade on the killers, <laughs> but I love, they're like, Oh, sesame seeds and string beans. That's a mama's boy. He lives at home. Love it. <laughs> uh, is that like like can, can you go to a restaurant and be like can i get the mama's boy special <laughs> yeah big card like where's your mom oh right there yep yep we got yeah, it yeah. for you yeah she's gonna be paying so <laughs> just hand her the bill yeah. you know mama's boy special so. so theory number two is that it's possible that the killer isn't isn't even from the area at all possibly not even the country sad as it is we've heard of service members home mm -hmm. and abroad committing atrocities. Currently there are around 50,000 U S service members um, and personnel stationed in Japan. This is a presence that's been consistent since the end of world war II. So given the history of like horrific crimes, such as rape and murder committed by soldiers, Marines, airmen, and sailors, along with the killers mixed heritage, it gives way to the possibility that the killer was a member of the U.S. military or a U.S. contractor working on a nearby military base. The family's right. and house. The, and then the sand from California and the shoes that could only be bought in Korea. Right. So that plus the family's house was accessible from several train stations, most of, most of which had service to downtown Tokyo. My only concern with that theory is if it was a service member, their prints would be in the system. Right. Yeah. Now, so I don't know about contractors. I'm, I'm assuming contractors would as well since they're working for the military, but I don't know. But I know as a service member, my they took all my prints, a former service member. So there's a third theory. The fanny pack left behind contained sands, which we talked about, indicating mm -hmm. the killer spent plenty of time outside. The family also uh, excuse me, the family, the fanny pack also contained a fluorescent pen. And as previously mentioned, his age was put somewhere between 15 and 35 years old. Japan has very strict immigration policies, 
but also has a lot of illegal immigration, most of which coming from Northeast and South Asia since the 1980s. Until this case, I never even knew that. Like, I never knew there was an illegal immigration problem in Japan. Yeah. Not something that I had ever considered. Right. So the theory is that the killer was actually actually an illegal immigrant or transient who hopped on uh, Japan's trains to travel, committed the crime, fleed. And that would kind of explain why he kind of hung out and ate and used the bathroom. You know, had access to stuff that he wouldn't normally have access to. Right. And a new change of clothes. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, another theory, some circumstantial evidence says that it could have been a service member, but not from the U.S., from South Korea. So again, the killer's DNA showed Korean ancestry on the father's side. Also, forensic testing on the clothing left at the scene showed it had been washed but not in traditional Japanese style. Instead, the clothing had been washed in mineral-rich mineral rich hard water, a common cleaning water in South Korea. So true crime author Fumaya Ishihashi wrote a book about the murders called the Setagaya Family Murders Case, 15th Year New Facts. He believes he knows who the killer is. He calls the unnamed suspect by the pseudonyme In-Un Lee. Fumaya says Lee's footprints and fingerprints match those from the crime scene. Lee also apparently knew a lot of details about the case that had not been released to the public. Lee was serving in the South Korean military and claims he was hired to kill the family by an underground real estate developer. The Miyazawas apparently were worth $1.2 million cash at the time of their deaths. So we talked about the city's expansion plans and the fact that the family had already um, been paid and were planning to move. So you add that to the soon to be, um, add that, add that, and there seems to be a connection between real estate and organized crime. We could say the vacant lots are further proof of the expansion plans theory and the, the fact that all of the family's drawers and storage spaces were searched and things were thrown into the tub could be proof that the, the killer was like looking for something. Yeah. Also their bank books, driver's licenses and credit cards all still in the home, neatly organized on the sofa on the second floor. So like after this dude takes a nap, he like organizes their personal effects. Weird. So motives range from revenge to random to financial, but since the killer lingered at the house for hours and nothing was really stolen, investigators aren't so sure about the robbery financial motive. Like if it was a killer for hire, typically he would have just gone in, killed the family and left. There would be no reason to linger. And like, like the police have kind of like hit the greatest hits here. Like we, we, we blame the skaters. They might be, a, it might be a biker gang. It might be organized crime. Like vampires are next. <laughs> I personally think the most logical would be that it was probably a transient and maybe it was yeah. a transient that had been in the area for a while. Yeah. I forgot transients. They're on, you know, they're just hitting all the, 
all the usual suspects. You know, the, the, the illegal that had come into the country and they, you know, it was a, a house. Fortunately, you know, the other side, they were not impacted and it could have been a, you know, an opportunity. I don't, I doubt it was a crime of opportunity because the window wasn't open. He had to climb to the second floor, but who, you know, I don't know why he picked them or maybe he saw that they had a nice car or whatever. And mm -hmm. if he's, you know, a homeless dude, who knows, you know, you can't get inside their head. Yeah, perhaps mentally unstable. Right. The investigation into the Miyazawa family murders is one of the largest in Japanese history. Over 245,000 investigators have collected over 12,500 pieces of evidence. In 2015, 40 officers were assigned to the case on a full-time basis. Every full-time officers? 40 full-time officers. Every year, the Tokyo Metro Police Department goes to the house for memorial ceremonies. As of 2019, the 40 officers became 35. So as of last check, it's now it's still at 35 full-time officers on this case. That's crazy. No wonder they've got a billion suspects and a billion theories. Yeah, a lot of chefs in that, in that, in that kitchen. Currently, the Tokyo Metro PD is offering 20 million yen, which is $182,265 as a reward to anyone who can offer up help in finding clues that could lead to a suspect in the closing of this case. The Miyazawa house, due to age and deterioration, they, the Tokyo police have announced plans to tear it down. All evidence from the house is in custody. So there's nothing remaining in the house. Right. I mean, it's been 20 years, right? Yeah. Right. So as of December of 2020, almost 14,000 tips have been provided to the police. So if you have any info that you, you want to share, or yeah. maybe you are an internet sleuth and you're like, oh, yeah. I remember this case. I, you know, I've, I, I researched this. You can contact the CJO police station at 03-34-82-3829. Please remember if you are calling um, outside of Japan, because I know we do have listeners in Japan. Thank you very much. Uh, charges will apply. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, it almost feels like there's too much evidence. Like it's all like, it's all so contradictory. Like, we got this piece over here with the, this sub, so it makes it. You wonder if like they've got so many people on it that they've literally they're seeing the forest and not the trees. Or whoever this killer was, you know, we're thinking, oh man, this is going to be a home run because he left all this evidence, and maybe that was the point of it. Maybe he yeah. did it to throw them off. They're thinking it's a man, you know, and I, yes, okay, they've got the DNA, but it's not that hard to get DNA or other things from other people. So, I mean, mm -hmm. who knows what he left behind intentionally. Yeah. And that's the other thing, like it, that couldn't be a murder for hire because they wouldn't leave all that stuff. Right. Or they'd bring, you know, unless it's all planted evidence. Right. Exactly. But that is the Setagawa family murders of Tokyo. It doesn't seem like it's a it's for a lack of trying on the police part. Not even a little. I mean, they are really busting it trying to solve this one. Did I freak you? I'm sorry. I know you. No, I know that. No, I know the unsolved just, ones get to you. 
I mean, it feels like I'm sure people have books have been written and, and theories and like, it feels like, you know, the start of like a, like you could have an entire like Maravise town style murder mystery investigation show. Uh, it, almost, it, it seems more un like more surreal than reality, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but I will have pictures on our website of, like I said, the dwelling, so you can kind of see the layout of it because it is hard to describe. But it, like I said, it's like a full first floor and then like a ha- like a half kind of a loft type of a second floor and then the pull down, fold out uh, steps that lead up to the attic. Mm-hmm. I always thought those were really cool when I saw my TV shows, like secret staircases. <laughs> But there you go. So that's the B side. So now we move over to the A side. And as we mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, it has been super beautiful here in Minnesota. And I have been doing tons of walking with my pup Lorelei. And uh, I have been addicted to my iWatch uh, little movement thingy uh, over the last year. I've been trying to close all the rings. Uh, And one of the neat things that I have always loved and really didn't happen at all last year, uh, our garage sales. And as a kid, I would always go out garage sailing with uh, my father. And when we would visit my grandparents down in Arkansas, we'd go to flea markets and antique stores. And it was always a, felt like a treasure hunt or a scavenger hunt or an adventure to try to find something at all these places. And so that, partly is where some of my collecting uh, has always, you know, began. My dad was a big collector. I was a photographer, so I was a collector of Kodak stuff. So we'd always go and look for Kodak stuff. And then I'd start looking for, you know, Star Wars figures or comic books or things that I was interested in. Uh, I have, as I mentioned, a VHS collection. So I've been super excited as I've been walking in the last couple of weeks to see more and more garage sales popping up. Uh, you're still a challenge. I mean, I carry a, a mask with me because you're going into a stranger's house. You want to be respectful, but also protective of yourself. Even if you're vaccinated, they may not be. Uh, so I finally stumbled upon a garage sale uh, late last week, uh, a couple blocks from my house. And, you know, it was an adventure and that they had a, they had a watch collection. So there were literally hundreds of wrist watches and, it was an, an older family that was uh, older couple that was downsizing. So they had, you know, older silverware and stuff for the kitchen. And it's just, it's like a time capsule and you're going through everything and I'm going through the house, checking everything out. And there were, you know, s- some star Wars watches from when the, the prequels came out in the late nineties and which I was like, wow, I already got those. So I probably don't need any more. And out on their porch, kind of hidden in the corner were these two paper boxes filled with VHS tapes, which of course catches Adam's attention because I am obsessed with VHS tapes. And I started to, to, to flip through them and see what I could find if there was anything that, that caught my eye that I didn't have or in shape versions of something I did maybe. Uh, the Disney movies in the classic plastic eggshell cartons mm-hmm. are always ones that catch my eye to see if I can find ones in good shape because those can be Disney's really good about only releasing certain times when you could buy them. And so they're, they retain some value in certain markets. 
most of the ones that they had were in, you know, pretty beat up and, and weren't anything new, but I did find uh, a very, a, a VHS of ET in really good condition. So you've got those cardboard case sleeves that they always used to come out. And those things were notoriously easy to rip and tear. I mean, it's just paper. Uh, this one looked like it had barely ever been uh, used. I was not still in the plastic. Uh, so I was super excited about that because I didn't have a ET that was in that good of shape. So I was going to get that. And then right next to it in a plastic hard case, uh, was another VHS that caught my eye. And so I don't, if you remember at least up here, like there we had chains called like Mr. Movies and it, they weren't as big as, you know, the Hollywood videos or blockbusters, but they were more like local chains. Mm -hmm. And around here, it was, a lot of them would buy these generic white or brown VHS cases and then take the, plat the uh, paper sleeve and cut it up and like slide it in. Uh, so it would it would be a more, you know, uh, sturdy and would last longer case and you'd still have, you know, all of the graphics and all the details. And so this one was a white case that had the cardboard sleeve cut apart and slipped into, into the little uh, window area. And it was for episodes of the real Ghostbusters cartoon from the mid 80s. And it immediately took me back. Not something that I had really thought of in a long time, but there are certain moments that just stick in your head. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching a Ghostbusters cartoon in when I was in kindergarten and first grade, back when I lived in Seward, Nebraska, uh, we lived in uh, a ranch style house uh, and we had a, a apartment in the basement and in the basement there was this wonderful uh, little old lady named Edna who moved in and who would watch my little brother while my parents were at work and I was at school and Andrew would hang out with Edna in the basement and then I would come home from school and run down and get to hang out and play a little bit if my parents weren't home yet or my folks were doing something upstairs and Edna was she was like an unofficial grandparent. She was a wonderful lady uh, who will always be uh, hold a special place in my heart. But I remember sitting on the floor in that basement apartment and watching Ghostbusters cartoons, but it wasn't the real Ghostbusters because in 1986, there were two competing Ghostbusters cartoons. And this has been a topic that I've wanted to talk about on the podcast. So I had myself convinced that I'd already done it because I know I've thought about it before, mm -hmm. but I'm pretty sure I haven't. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the Ghostbusters movie, which came out in 1990, 1984 with Bill Murray and Harold Ramis. Uh, of course, it is the most famous Ghostbusters. It's one everybody knows, the Stay Puft Marshmallow, uh, um, Sigourney Weaver, uh, and then you've got Rick Moranis in there. It's the, when you say Ghostbusters, that's what everybody thinks about. Mm -hmm. Evidently, there was a Ghostbusters TV show in the 1970s. And when I say Ghostbusters, it was actually two words. So it was the Ghostbusters, a three word title uh, that was in 1975. It was a live action television show and it followed two guys and their talking gorilla <laughs> as they uh, 
chased ghosts. And this live action television show was made by Filmation. And so Columbia Pictures wanted to buy the rights to the name for their movie, Ghostbusters. Uh, that's all they took, though, was the name. And they didn't, you know, the characters aren't the same other than, you know, it's some guys chasing ghosts. There's really no connection. Uh, Filmation was like, whatever, this is a live action show that we had nine years ago. We're not worried about it. Sure, give us some money for the name. We'll take uh, the... The contract will be for the name and also so give us uh, half a million dollars and a promise of 1% of the profits of this movie you're making. Uh, but of course, Hollywood being Hollywood, there are always stipulations and things in contracts that change over time in the early 80s, evidently creating cartoons from movies was not something people thought about when they wrote this, wrote the series or they wrote the contract. Uh, and also, even though the gross Ghostbusters movie from 1984 uh, grossed $165 million at the box office and was a huge hit, spawned a sequel, it actually failed to turn a profit, according to the accountants, uh, due to some Hollywood-style accounting where they move things around. And so there was no profit for Filmation to get 1% of. Filmation feeling a little gypped because they thought they were going to get some of the profits of this huge movie said, all right, we're going to take everything else from that 1975 live action TV series, the characters and the story and update it and call it Ghostbusters and create an animated TV show. So the animated TV show Ghostbusters was a sequel to the 1975 live action series. The live action series from 1975 focused on two gentlemen uh, that were ghost, uh, the Ghostbusters. Uh, it was uh, veteran TV actors uh, who had both been in the series F Troop, which is sort of a slapsticky uh, send up of. Um, the old West army style and a fort uh, Forrest Tucker and Larry Storch uh, played a pair of bumbling detectives who would travel the world hunting ghosts with the aid of their talking friend who was a gorilla named Tracy. Uh, <laughs> the TV series Ghostbusters theme song. Uh, I think they put in just slightly more time and effort in the Ghostbusters theme song because it's sung by the two guys and it literally sounds almost as bad as the theme song that I came up with on a whim that occasionally plays uh, for the A-side, B-side. Uh, it is the worst the worst uh, You say occasionally, it plays every time. I know it plays every time. But, uh, I, it, is, it is not my best work. However, it is on par with the Ghostbusters theme song. I don't, I've, I, I've sent you know, I'll send you the link, Brooke. So I don't know if we can put it on the on the website or not. I don't know how rights work, but it is so awful. Uh, the only clever thing that they do in the intro to the show is they have the man in a gorilla suit, and it is obviously a rubber gorilla suit. It is not well done. <laughs> you can see that it is you know guy's face underneath. Uh, and when they're introducing all the characters, they claim that Tracy is trained by the actor. Uh, which I thought was a clever little thing for the opening. 
the animated series takes place later and it focuses on the children of the two main characters. So in the first series, there was Jake Kong and there was Eddie Spencer. So in the animated series, their offspring, Jake Kong Jr. and Eddie Spencer are the uh, heroes. But of course, Tracy the Talking Gorilla sticks around. He's sort of the, the linchpin between the two series. So if you're looking for continuity, Tracy's the the... C-3PO and uh, R2-D2 of this universe. He's in both versions. Uh, Jake Kong is the team leader. Uh, his special ability is that his nose twitches whenever a ghost is nearby. Okay. So, yeah, either he's he might be allergic to ghosts. Uh, Eddie Spencer is his friend who is cowardly and clumsy, uh, but he has a good heart. So that that's good. And he's always there for his friends Jake and Tracy. What I remember liking most about the Ghostbusters cartoon was that they had a talking car called the Ghost Buggy, which was actually voiced by the same actor who voiced Jake Kong Jr. The car could fly, talk, and travel through time. So talk about your awesome car. This was like... It looked like the Munsters car, but it could do the same things that a DeLorean could do from Back to the Future. So obviously was the coolest car ever. Uh, it had the Fright Freeze, which was a weapon that would freeze ghosts. It had a dematerializer net, which is a net that was attached to the front of the car and you could shoot out and catch and dematerialize ghosts. The Ghostbusters had very much like the proton packs from the movie Ghostbusters, they had a ghost dematerializer, uh, which would send ghosts away. And who were these ghosts that Jake and Eddie and Tracy the gorilla were fighting? Well, they were all sent to the time by a bad guy whose name is so bad, it's great. His name was Prime Evil. He was the <laughs> leader of the ghosts. And he resided at, get this, at Haunt Quarters, no. which was somewhere in the fifth no. dimension. No. Uh, Prime Evil, oh yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty great. Prime Evil, basically, they didn't spend a lot of time crafting his backstory or his costume or his character. Uh, he basically just looks like a robot skull in a cape. Uh, and he lived and would send ghosts into our dimension that Jake and Eddie and Tracy would have to chase off. Uh, he looked like uh, one uh, website said that Primeval looked like a cyborg version of Skeletor in flowing scarlet robes. Uh, he didn't have actual teeth. He had a Jacob's Ladder, and it sparked whenever he got angry. Mm. I remember Primeval as a great bad guy, but it was mostly the car and the sidekicks that I remember. I, you know, I couldn't have... I couldn't have told you Jake and Eddie's names, but they had a bunch of supporting characters. So they had a talking skull foam named, and I warned you with the haunt quarters, it was going to get bad. Uh, they had a talking skull phone called the Ansabone. The what? They had a, the Ansabone. So oh answer my. the bone. Wow. <laughs> they had a talking skeleton television called Skelevision. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> they had a pink talking bat named Belfry. And of course, there was 
Ghost Buggy Jr. Uh, because it was a descendant of the Ghost Buggy from the original series as well, which was their talking car. Uh, Filmation got 65 episodes of the ghost of Ghostbusters created. It came out six months uh, before the real Ghostbusters, which is what Columbia did when they launched their ver cartoon, uh, which was based on the movie with Ray and Egon and Spangler and Bill Murray's character, whose name I am forgetting, which is ridiculous, and Slimer and Janine, all the, all the characters from the TV show. That one ran for a lot longer and was uh, a much bigger hit. Uh, the Ghostbusters from Filmation, or Filmation's Ghostbusters, has gone on to be known, only ran from September 8th to December 5th of 1986. So we're talking four months for this move for this TV show to ingrain itself in Adam's memory about sitting in Edna's basement apartment after school, watching the Ghostbusters take on Prime Evil. Uh, it had, went straight to video. Uh, or it went to video as Filmation's Ghostbusters because there was so much confusion. However, it was not without controversy because it came out, the TV, the Ghostbusters cartoon came out after the movie. So two years after the Ghostbusters movie, there were complaints that the studio had changed the character of Winston uh, who's played by uh, Ernie Hudson in the movie. Some people misunderstood and thought that this was a continuation of the movie and they had changed his character into an ape. Oh. Yeah. So understandably, that made some people very upset. Uh, it was not well received. Uh, there was... Uh, a lot of people, when they saw that the Ghostbusters cartoon was coming on, they expected it to be the familiar characters. And when it wasn't, they complained to the stations. Uh, people got pretty upset. And that's why it lasted just four months and only one season. And the real Ghostbusters came back. And I thought it was interesting because you've got Ghostbusters and then they come back with the other animated series called The Real Ghostbusters, which reminded me of how many... Twitter accounts and Instagram accounts happened where you would have a famous person's name had already been taken mm -hmm. by somebody else and they'd have to go like the real da da da, uh, all calling back in my mind to the real Ghostbusters cartoon. So you're saying as an audience member and Brooke, I'm sure you are as well saying, you know, this sounds like an amazing series. Oh, this yeah. is clearly something that I want to run out and watch right away. And the good news is it was released on dvd in 2007 in two volumes so all 65 episodes you can get in two different volumes uh the bad news is it's kind of hard to find uh there are six discs in each volume uh the only one i could find online on amazon.com uh is currently retailing for 89.98 or 89.99 which if you remember <laughs> In our last episode, I talked about all 23 or 27 Bond movies you could get for $79.99. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be a better deal than Filmation's Ghostbusters. Uh, and then you're only getting half of the series 
uh, for $89.99. You can get a couple of DVD of single episodes, uh, the So Much Fun It's Spooky episode, and a episode that focuses strictly on Prime Evil. You can find those on Amazon. Uh, for a while, it was streaming on Amazon Prime. Uh, and the series itself has had several different lives of reruns. Uh, in the U.S., it reran on something called the CBN cable uh, on the Family Channel. It was on Cubo's Cubo Night Owl, Night Owl block from 2010 to 2013. And then in 2015, it was on the Retro Television Network. So it's still out there, uh, but it is not readily available. And unlike many of my other A-sides, I, I will not admit that I have purchased this one. Uh, I have not made the dive. I'm trying to, as I mentioned earlier, I'm trying to show a little bit more self-control. Uh, so I have not purchased the first season of Filmation's Ghostbusters. But should we believe you? Because you just said you wouldn't admit to it. Well, I can admit that I haven't done it. How about that? Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, as of right now, uh, I have been very tempted because uh, the real Ghostbusters, which I got on VHS uh, this last week, uh, made me look into buying that series, uh, which was a lot of fun. They made Slimer more of a main character. He's one of the Ghostbusters, where in the movie, he's you know just a visual and not really a talking uh, part of the team. Uh, so Slimer really became a, a big part of my brain as like a sidekick because of the cartoon series. So I thought about buying that and that one's in the 30 to 40 range. So of the two, there's a, there's a better chance that I might uh, end up buying the real Ghostbusters DVDs before the Ghostbusters, uh, the reboot of the 1975 TV series, which I through my best efforts, and if anybody listening can find it, I could. And every time I've mentioned that, somebody has, which is really cool because, like, we the Ewok movies are now on Disney Plus. But we, I had another listener who, way back when our first episode, sent me a link to watch those movies on a stream online uh, after the very first episode. So people have been great about being able to find stuff. Uh, I've not been able to find the 1975 live action. Uh, TV series other than uh, the opening credits with the world's worst theme song, uh, which I will say is worse than mine, uh, but you'll have to be the judge of that. So if you can find the full ser episodes of that, shoot it over to us, uh, because after watching those opening credits, I certainly want to watch at least one episode of the Ghostbusters. Okay. I don't know where to find them, but if I hear about it, because sometimes I do hear about it, people are like, hey, tell Adam um, this. So if I hear about it, I'll let you know. Well, I mean, I was last summer, somebody found a DVD of the Ewok movies at, at a local place there in town. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So I can't wait to hear this theme song. Oh, it's, it's, so it's, it's bad. It's bad. <laughs> Oh, all right. So that's the A side. That is the A side. All right. So we started um, with our guest um, spotlighting different uh, causes. And I think this is something that, not I think, this is something that we will continue to do 
Um, and I think it's important. And we started with our guest, Aurora from Murder, Murder News. We start, we talked about the Trans Defense Fund of LA. And of course, you can find out more of that. That's still linked on our website. And I will link it again with this episode as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think each month we will focus on different causes that make a huge difference in underserved and um, minority communities because they really need to be brought attention to. Also, it's June, which means it's Pride Month. So that's another great reason if you want to find out more about the Trans Defense Fund of LA and what they do and where their funds go and how they help out, uh, you can do that. Or if you'd like your money to stay locally, look up. Um, I, I suggest you look up uh, an LGBTQIA plus um, organization in your area to see how you can you can help and uh aurora i've got a that guy from that thing coming probably next week (laughs) (laughs) all right uh as always if you'd like to help out the podcast you support the podcast you can do that several ways first we would really greatly appreciate it if you head on over to apple and give us a, a rating uh give us a review Give us five stars. Tell us how much you love it, please. All of those ratings and reviews really do help. Um, You can also head on over to our website. We always post our sources and we post photos on our website. It's, what is it, Adam? It is A-side, B-side podcast.square.site. Yes, nailed that one. Yeah, and what we couldn't see was Adam panically grabbing his phone because I had it ready to go. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to have the website right. But I was like, where? Because it, it got dark while we're doing the podcast and I could not find my phone for a second in the dark. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, also, you can buy us a coffee, buymeacoffee.com slash pod. We are on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Uh, We are all over the place. So head on over. We always post pictures on our Twitter as, excuse me, on our Instagram and we do reply. So if you've got a story that you would like for us to look into, or you've got a, that guy from that show that you want Adam to talk about, uh, let us know. We also have an email, a side, B side podcasts with an S at gmail.com. Yeah. And we're still, uh, still waiting on that individual to find all the Angelina Jolie references in each episode. So. And don't we have some stuff, new stuff coming for the website? Yes, we do. We've got some new, uh, some new t-shirts. We've got some stuff for the pups. It's all done. I just have to put it up on the website. Yeah. And I'm certainly not putting any pressure on you because I do none of the actual work. (laughs) So it'd be a real D move for me to be like, Hey, I know you're doing all the design work and everything, but uh, could you hurry that up since I'm putting in no effort? But yes, you can head it over there. There's sweatshirts. I know it's a bit warm now, but there's t-shirts. Uh, you can grab yourself a t-shirt. We had uh, some cool t-shirts, man. Puzzles. We've got yeah. coffee mugs. Yeah, big- I, I told my dog that she's, she's got stuff coming. So she keeps asking. I was really, she, she's the one pushing. Okay. All right. All right. For, for Lorelai, I will get it done. <laughs> All right, that's been another episode, episode number 49. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Brooke. 
duck blind on Real Foot Lake in northwestern Tennessee becomes the unlikely site of a double homicide. Then the suspect's body is discovered floating in the murky waters nearby to the scene of the crime. Maya Miliete goes missing from Chola Vista after a fight with her husband, leading friends and family to believe he might be involved. Tune in to Murder, Murder News, The Listen Edition every Friday for the biggest true crime cases making headlines each week. Subscribe to Murder, Murder News, The Listen Edition, wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, thank you for listening to A-Side, B-Side podcast. If you enjoy the show, please, if you don't mind, head on over to Apple and leave us a rating or a review. And if you'd like to continue to support the podcast, you can do so by heading on over to Patreon or you can buy us a coffee, as well as buying merch on our website, asidebsidepodcast.square.site. From Adam and I at A-Side, B-Side podcast, please remember to wear your mask, social distance if you're around people that don't live in your household, and just be safe and happy. Thanks again from us here at A-Side B-Side Podcast.